Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, that's in the New Testament. It's uh, right after the book of Philippians. A great way to remember this. We've shared this many times. General Electric Power Company, right? So if you go into the New Testament, as you find the epistles, the letters written in various churches, you're going to see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. Somebody also had recommended that you could remind yourself of that truth by saying, girls eat potato chips. Um, so if you choose which one you like, <laughs> it's helpful to you, but we encourage you to uh, be familiar with the scriptures, be familiar with the Bible. This morning, we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Colossians. And as uh, you join me this morning in, in, the, in your copy of God's Word, I just want to remind you just kind of where we're going in this series. You can see on our title slide here that the, the whole idea, the theme that we're really pushing this morning, uh, and we've been pushing the past few weeks through the book of Colossians, is that we are being alive in Christ. Uh, and so I shared this morning as we were singing that when we enter into a relationship with God, when we have become Christians uh, by returning from our sin and trusting in God's work through Jesus on the cross, that he justifies us, he makes us righteous in his standing, but he gives us new identity and we are united together with Jesus. So we are in Christ this morning. So if you are a Christian, you have come to a place in your life where you have trusted in Jesus' work on the cross to forgive your sin, there's great news. You are alive in Christ. If this is not a, a relationship that you have uh, yet this morning, we're going to challenge you this morning to trust in Jesus, to become alive, to be born again, to be created new. And, and so as we've been going through the book of Colossians, Paul writes this letter to a church that he's never visited. Uh, it's located in the Lycus Valley, which we would see now as like modern-day Turkey, Greece. Uh, and he writes to them because they've been uh, influenced by false teaching. They're a group of Gentile believers, uh, so the city was not made of any Jewish structures, any of the uh, outside structures of Judaism, and, and, and uh, the Gentiles believed much in mythology, much in mysticism, uh, they believed many different things, and they were known as pagans. Uh, so as Paul writes to this church, he is writing uh, through a messenger named Epaphras. Epaphras uh, came to know the Lord, uh, he heard the gospel from Paul. He was sent by Paul into this region where he began to proclaim the good news of Jesus and help establish churches. So Epaphras is the one who is then leading them, and Epaphras has given a report that uh, some have come from within this church and they have brought uh, bad teaching to the Colossians. It has led them astray. Uh, and so uh, Paul is hard in it. Colossians 1.28 says, Can we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ? The goal of Paul's letter is to stir them on to maturity in Jesus. And so, one thing that I've said over the past three weeks again and again is this. You do not graduate out of meeting Jesus. So friend, this morning, if you're here, if you have been taught some sort of religious system of legalism or some sort of elitist mentality where you have to do these things in order to go up the ladder, here's the good news. There's no ladder with Jesus. There was a cross. And on the cross, Jesus died. He was buried and he resurrected. And by his work on the cross, he brought us into the right relationship with God. And so we no longer need to try to climb a ladder. We need to continue to bend at the cross of Jesus. So this morning, our big idea as we enter into Colossians 2, last week, we 
we started this section where Paul started to warn the Colossians. He has gotten out of his introduction and his thanksgiving to them, and he writes to them and instructs them that they would do this. Verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the mark of a good Christian is not one who climbs the ladder, but one who is rooted in Christ. And so we use this illustration of a tree. And if you look outside, there's a beautiful tree that was cut down over here in the corner. Uh, there were some limbs chopped off. But the idea of a tree is that all of that big, tall beauty that you see uh, in the trees, whether it's in your yard or here at the church, the, the flowers that come from them, they don't come because of what's going on up here. They come because of what happened down here in the roots. And so as Paul says that you are to continue to walk in the Lord, he says that we're rooted in Christ and we're built up in him. The growth that we receive as Christians does not come in our own effort. It comes from our root structure in Jesus. And so another mark of, of Christians that we are established in the faith, and here the imagery that Paul is using is like an anchor. As we're established, we are immovable. We are holding our structure in place. We are established in the faith. That is the message of the gospel, the instruction of the scriptures. And here's another beautiful mark of a Christian, someone who abounds in thanksgiving. We have a beautiful walk with the Lord. We get to serve him. We get to gather together with the saints. And we have every reason to be joyous in the Lord. So the Christian is not one who is weary 24-7. One who continues to say, look at all of my sin and my misery. But one who looks and says, though I was blind, now I see. This is what Jesus has done through the cross. So the first warning that Paul gave in Colossians 2, verses 6-15 through was that no one would take you captive by empty philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And what we're going to look today is in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. We're going to hear two more warnings to this church. But the big idea is this, is that Christians are to walk in Christ. We are to walk in Christ. We are to remember that at the beginning of our walk, with God, that Jesus gave us our steps. That as we continue to grow in our walk with God, Jesus will give us our steps. And as we continue in with Jesus, Jesus will establish our steps in Him. As we grow in Christ, our roots are strengthened. And the results are an established faith and a bounding things. So look at verses 16 through 23, all along as I read from God's word this morning. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, 
is if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be as we come to this section of Colossians, we're going to see two points this morning, and they, they're this. The first is, don't let anyone condemn you. So we see this in verses 16 and 17. And the second half of these warnings comes in the form of, don't let anyone disqualify you, which we'll see in verses 18 and 19, and Paul wraps this section up in verses 20 through 23. But first, let's look at this first call. In verse 16, again, he says, let no one pass judgment on you, in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And so what is happening here is that the, the Colossian Christians are being taught by these people who have come within the church, who were established believers, got to know Jesus, became influential in the church, and they went off on the wrong path. They pursued their own power, their own influence, and one of the things that they faced within their church was the separation that they had from their Gentile world. As they identified with Christ, this led to the abandonment of their families, the abandonment of their community, abandonment of the structures and relationships that they had in place that they valued. And these Colossian false teachers came in, they visited the church, they continued to preach to them, hey, it's great that you have Jesus, that's great news. They found a common ground. Praise be to God, you know who Jesus is. But they led them astray by saying, you need more. And Jesus isn't enough for you. You need something else to grow you in your walk with God. If you're going to walk with God, you have to do these things. They need to take shape in this form. And so what Paul has already said to these Christians is that you're rooted in Christ, you're built up in Christ, and let no one take you captive by empty teaching. And so his second warning is don't let anyone condemn you. We see this, the ESV translates this word uh, judgment. It's actually a Greek word, Greek word, not the Greek, there is no Greek language. The Greek word, which is krino, it means to separate or to select or to choose or approve or esteem to be opinion of or to judge or think of in a certain way. And really it's a one word that fills a whole statement which they say, don't let them act as your judge. And so I want to portray for you a picture of what happens for the believer when they walk into a relationship with Christ. We said that we're justified by Jesus. As non-believers, as people in the world, as sinners, we stand before a holy God who is acting as judge. We're separated from him by our sin. We're seen as guilty. And it, when what happens in the courtroom as God looks on us, as we hear the good news of what Jesus has done, as we trust in him, Jesus comes in as the guy who's going to pay our bail. He bails us out of jail. He gives us a payment to settle our debts, to remove the legal cloth of our sin. He makes us righteous before God. So now our righteousness is accounted in Jesus. 
That is great news. And so we see that reality. That's the truth, the biblical truth of justification. Now these false teachers are saying, that's true, but God still remembers the account of all your wrongdoing. And that's not biblical truth. Biblical truth tells us that when we're justified in God, that we stand now in that righteousness. The page has been made blank. We are now clean before God because we are united with Christ. But what these false teachers are saying is, you're not united with Christ. He just paid your debt. He let you go. Here's your get-out-of-jail-free card. You need to do all of these things, these outward acts, in order for you to be righteous. And in fact, what they're doing is they're not letting God be the judge of sin and of holiness. They're stepping into the place of God as the judge. And they're condemning these people. They're saying, you're not meeting the standard. And particularly, Paul says in verse 16 that they're passing judgment on them in questions of food and drink in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And so they're, they're saying, hey, you can't eat these things. You can't drink these things. And it even says, um, with regard to food and drink, the idea here could be that, that they're fasting, that they're uh, starving themselves. You, you need to starve yourself so that you can encounter the deepest things of God. He tells them that these things are forbidden, the food and the drink, but that they're also required of them that they practice some sort of festival, that they continue to follow a calendar that they no longer live by. They're connecting to their pagan ties. They're to follow a Sabbath. They're so strict on the Sabbath that they seem to do anything that this would lead you astray. But hear what Paul says about these things in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is in Christ. So Paul says that these false teachers are giving these people shadows, saying you need to do these things. And Paul says, no, the good substance, the weight of our relationship with God, does not come by these actions. It comes by the substance, the solid rock we stand on in Christ. The shadows disappear, but the substance remains. And so we sang the song this morning, Cornerstone. That Christ is our cornerstone. The Bible uses this imagery. Jesus, when he said to Peter, Peter, on you this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We stand on the solid rock of Christ. We don't need the substance or the shadow of other things. As you stand in shadows, I'm trying to put it in a shadow, a cloud, an image, it's going to fall short. If you put your foot on the rock, you won't So what are their motivations? saying, hey, you do these things. Take Lucas has a good list of four different desires that motivate these people to act in such a way. But the first is their desire to be superior. Now, if you've ever been in a place, uh, how many 
many of us are prideful, right? Each one of us has the struggle of pride. We want to be known. We want to be seen. There's nothing more frustrating than when we're doing something at work and we're not recognized for the, the hard work that we put in, the energy, the effort that makes us feel bad. But there are people who desire to be superior. Does anybody have that friend that always has to one-up your story? Right? Isn't that irritating? Well, this one time, I, I take you one time I, I hurt my five people playing soccer, right? Yeah, like the worst injury ever. It's such a big injury. Right? So I'm like, oh man, I was out of bed. I had to sit or sleep sitting up for six to eight weeks. Uh, I couldn't even take my shirt off. My friends had to come and help me like get my stuff off so I could get in the shower. It was horrible. <laughs> and one of my other friends is like, yeah, well, I broke both of my legs. I was like, okay. <laughs> Well, I guess I'm not going to be that, but I'm not really concerned of who had the superior injury. Friends, people can do this in their religiosity. Think of the Pharisees who looked down on other people. Think of the Pharisee who entered into the temple and prayed, and as he saw a man that was at the beginning, the front of the temple, who banged on his chest and pounded his fist, and he said, God, I'm a miserable sinner. Look at how far I am from you. He walks into the temple, this Pharisee, and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like him. That's religious superiority. Yeah, well, you've been a Christian for five years? Well, I've been a Christian for ten. Right? Man, here's another thing. All right, well, you're just a young guy. What do you know? You're 1 Timothy 4, 12, friend. Let no one look down on you for your youthfulness. But set the believers an example speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. In Christ, friends, there's not first class and second class. There is Christian. We are one in Christ. There's no sense of who is superior over the other, but we still have to wrestle with our flesh this side of heaven to not give into the temptation of saying, look at my superiority. Look at the things I withhold myself from. Look at the things that I embrace. The, the second motivation might be false zeal. Sometimes people think that walking with Jesus is all about compassion. Well, if I can just be passionate, if I can continue to light that flame, grow in my passion, my energy, look at that guy. He speaks with all sorts of energy. He's like, he's like a bunny. How do you calm him down? <laughs> Oh no, good luck. <laughs> I know one thing, that will die out. <laughs> but the false idea of zeal is, okay, well, if I'm going to walk with God, I really need to be passionate about what I'm doing. How many of you have ever come to church on a Sunday morning and not wanted to be here? There's the admission right here, right? Like, I was thinking as I was driving in, I'm like, man, i got to wear dark shirts for the rest of July because I am just going to be wet. <laughs> I'm going to set up the baptistry. We're going to have a tank out so that I can just take a dump before I get up and preach. And it was hard. It was hard to think through that. Oh, I wish we had this. I wish we had that. And I thought to myself, man, that didn't happen here in the first century. They got together because they loved the Lord. They loved one another. A false sense of zeal. Well, if I do all these things and I'm passionate about what I do for the Lord, then others will recognize me, and therefore, I'll be seen in the light of what I really want to be seen in, that I'm zealous for the Lord. 
Friends, people can sniff out who is evil. They can sniff it out and determine whether it's fake or whether it's real. And at the end of the day, your true color is really Third, for the dissatisfied with scriptural pattern, for the dissatisfied with the scripture. Friends, if you come to the Word of God, the Word of God says something that irks you, something that makes you uncomfortable, that is a good thing. It's a good thing because God's still on His throne and you're not on His throne. If we come to the Word and we're dissatisfied with the scriptural patterns, if we're looking for more, then that more will never be obtained. This idea that if I set the goal here, if I set the subjective reality for here, then I will be satisfied. But what do we find out again and again? If I find my worth in materials, if I find my worth in what I do, if I find my worth in the things that I have, if I find my worth in a place that's outside of Christ, you're going to continue to move the subjective reality and say, hey, it's got to be here, it's got to be here, it's got to be here. You're going to be running like a chicken with your head cut off, trying to find your satisfaction in God. But here what Paul says in the Philippians, be content in Christ. Be content in Christ. So maybe they have a desire to be superior. Maybe they have a false sense of zeal. Maybe they're dissatisfied with scriptural pattern. Maybe they're exaggerating the scripture. Look at all the things. I am so spiritual. I'm so connected with God. This reminds me of a story I once to do. Sorry, I'm cracking up. I had one guy, we didn't work together, sitting down and we you know, to James and just talking about humility. He goes, Well, I'm the most humble guy I know. I'm just laughing. And it was just something that, worked that I was like, Oh, no. I got caught. And I laughed. It was not humble to me, but I looked at him and said, Brother, if you have to say you're humble, then you're not humble. Fruit is shown. It's not, so if, you can't say it and hope that it comes into reality. You have to let it grab its root and work its way out. But somebody who continued to come into church and say, I've got to be really into the music today. I've got to really be into the words and proclaim Friends, I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the greatest pieces of advice that I got as a pastor was when somebody called me on my stuff and said, stop trying to send us all of your home run sermons and start sending us your week to week so that we can tell you you're hitting a single. If you hit a single, you're on good, you're on good ground there. Stop trying to swing for the fences every week. Hit the single. Be consistent. Because power doesn't rely on you. Power relies on God and His Word His Word. He will build this church. He didn't say he would. He said he would. So stop trying to do it for him. I walked away with my tail in my eyes. But established when we were out. It doesn't take on me. It's on the Lord. So don't let anyone condemn. What does this look like in, in the life of our church, our sin? Well, praise be to God that we're not telling anybody to abstain from food. We Encourage snack, right? You got a, a good old Baptist preacher in the right? 
I'm like, potluck comes around, I'm looking for reasons to put potlucks together. <laughs> Snack every weekend. We're not telling people to stand for food. That might not be a reality. Maybe the drink. There might be convictions about uh, standards of what you can drink and what you can't drink. Those can be issues of conscience that are based on the Word of God. But we can't say, hey, my conscience keeps me clearer than your conscience. This is what the Word of the Lord says. It sets some sort of standard. Well, maybe you shouldn't get a tattoo. Okay, well, come line up. Friends, let your principles be drawn from Scripture and not what other people are thinking. Let them be drawn from Scripture. And when you have a principle that doesn't match up with another person's, recognize whether it's a primary thing, a secondary thing, or a thing of liberty. Okay, we're talking about Jesus as the Son of God. If you think differently on that, we're going to have issues. Maybe it's a secondary thing. Okay, hey, can, can you do this or do that? Okay, well, there's good Christians on this side, good Christians on that side. There's room for agreement to disagree. And then liberty. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that says this. It doesn't tell you what college you go to. So you find liberty in use principle based on scripture. Any of you college students come up to me and tell me, hey, the Lord told me that I need to go here because of this verse in the Bible. Yeah, let's open that up. Let's look at that. Right? Jeremiah 29 11. Sorry, I know the plans I have for you because of the Lord. Plans to not harm you and prosper you. Well, were you in exile? Were you, Israel, sent into Babylonia on your own because the Lord was condemning you for your sin? I don't think that's what God had in mind for you, friends. It's a little different. Could be the desire of your spirit, could be false zeal, could be dissatisfaction, could be exaggerated spirituality. But hear this, in Christ, you no longer condemn. In Christ, you are now alive. When you stand before the Lord and He sees your sin, you will be made righteous, not because of your work, but because of Christ. And that, my friend, is the answer to never imagine. The second warning, the last warning in this section, don't let anyone disqualify you, verses 18 and 19. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. It's kind of interesting, as you see, at the beginning of these warning sections, Paul seems to have a plurality of false teachers in mind, and then in his second warning, he continues to kind of throw that name of here there could be multiple false teachers, but here, in this last warning, it's like he's aiming at one specific individual. And this is probably the leader of the pack, or the person we like to call the troublemaker. And it says that this troublemaker is insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, and he's going on in detail about visions, and he's puffed out without reason by his sensuous mind. And so there are a couple of things that we can see about this troublemaker. Specifically, the specialties of enthusiasm. There's this idea of self-abasement, worship of angels. I'm, I'm abstaining from these things. So look at my authority and my spirituality. And I'm coming into these things. I'm worshiping angels. 
Friends, if you look anywhere in the scripture where anybody encounters an angel and they fall on their face and they begin to worship them, what does the angel do? It says, get up. Get up. I am not worthy of your worship. So if this guy is coming and saying, look at these angels and I worship it, you have to take into consideration what scripture as a whole teaches about Every time there's some sort of encounter like this in scripture, every time the angel rebukes the person is to stand up. Stand up. But look at the ground of his authority. He's saying that here he says, going on in details about visions. He's looking for these visionary things. I'm having this. This vision, I know I'm seeing this, this is what's happening. And he's basing his authority on these things. He continues to say again and again, my authority comes from, well, you should listen to me because I had this particular vision. You should listen to me because of these things that I have seen. Friend, we should listen to someone because of what we're God, what God says. Let the authority be based upon the word. Sola Scriptura. The Reformation teaching that the authority of the church is not a pope. It's not an individual who says, look at the things that I've seen. The authority of the church is the word of God. And the moment it goes away from the word of God, it's not worth listening to. But hear these words that Jesus said in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Worse than that, Christ can say to some of the spiritual leaders of his day, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. He said that with himself, Pharisees. This comment, he says, yet in our stupidity, we Christians have too often given credence to the words of those who claim to have had unusual visions of heavenly reality in preference to the testimony of Christ. What's the preference? We refer here the words and visions I meant, or should we look to the testimony of Christ? Right, please look to the testimony. So he has special enthusiasm, he grounds his authority in what he's seen, but the root of his trouble is pride. I love this way that this is illustrated. Paul says, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth of from God. He's not holding fast to the head. This gave me this picture a couple weeks ago. Voting with Rachel's dad. And I went on the tube, right? Horrible idea. I used to love going to tubing with him. Love to go water skiing. But he loves to do one thing with me. He loves to fling me off the tube. It brings him some sort of special satisfaction. Right? And I'm his favorite kid, Pastor. <laughs> but he loves to throw me off the tube. And uh, we, we started going around the first time. It was helping him kind of clear out the corner and everything. And when you lay on that tube, you can 
got to hold on. If you don't hold on, you're, you're toast, right? So he goes around this corner, and I just went for a tumble. I was I went flying. It was ugly. It probably would have been great for America's Funniest Videos. It was not so great for yours truly. I think I sprained my ribs when I did it. I went, and a few days later, I went to go play golf. My first swing, I was playing 18 holes with a friend. First swing, I go pull back, and I feel it all in my ribs. I played the whole round of golf with hurt ribs. It was not smart. What is that illustration? You gotta hold on. Hold on is the boat's pulling. You have to hold on to Christ. If you don't hold on to Christ, you're going through the way. You're gonna sprain the ribs, you're gonna hurt yourself, you're gonna find growth that was not intended for you, or growth that was not intended for you. It says that our growth comes from the head. And here what the head does, he holds the whole body together. He nourishes the body. He knits it together so that through its joints and ligaments, it grows with a growth that is from God. If you encounter someone who says, look at my spirituality and how close I am to the Lord, but they don't attend church, they have gone from the head. They have left the body. Part of what it means for us to grow is our attachment to Christ and to believers. It's why we regularly gather together. It's the principle of Hebrews 10, where it says that we should gather together, that we should not neglect this duty of gathering together regularly to push one another on to good works and to remember that the day of the Lord is coming again. We gather as Christians not for our entertainment, not because we like a particular music selection, but because we need to gather together to continue to point one another to the head of Christ Jesus. He did not hold fast to Christ. And the takeaway for us is that every Christian needs to hold fast to the Lord. If we're holding fast to the Lord, then we will continue to see Him at work. It might take some time. There might be glaring sin issues in our lives that we need to confess, but it will work. Christ will grow us. And hear this, friends. When we let go of Christ, we don't hold on to Him. The church loses its unity. So not only is this dangerous for the individual, it's dangerous for the body of Christ. When your right arm is pulled out into left field, and it's not attached to your body, it stinking hurts. When you sprain your ribs, it stinking hurts. Don't play golf. Don't do that. But stay connected. To the body of Christ. And here again, every Christian, each one of us, has something to give to help nourish the body. For some of us that are in the ligaments and bones that are in whole people that are nourishing. But here, this conclusion, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirit of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all parishes that use are used according to human precepts and teachings. These are indeed an appearance of wisdom promoting self-made religion and a sense of the severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
So Paul gives these warnings, his last two warnings to the Colossians, to say, don't follow that example, but Paul, in his infamous style, he starts to lay out teaching and encouragement and instruction, and then he hammers the question home. He gets right to the issue of the matter. He's like, hey, Colossians, look out for these things, look out for these things, look out for these things. And then he drills them. He says, why are you acting like this? Why are you submitting to things that you should not submit to? He takes a moment to speak into the life of this church. And this was risky for him. Remember, he has not visited them. He has not been with them in person. But he's been with the Papyrus. And Papyrus was sent with the message of the gospel to this place. And Papyrus clearly taught them again and again. Here is who Christ is. And they continue to go on this path. And so Epaphras goes to appeal to Paul to say, Paul, help me out here, brother. Speak into the life of this church. And so Paul, as an apostle, speaks into the life of this church. And he says, hey, here are the things that you should be reminded of. Be rooted and built up in Christ. Be established in the faith of bounded thanksgiving. But he's laying his relationship on the line with these folks. But he points out an image and a theme that we need to be reminded of this morning is the life of the church. It's a picture of freedom and slavery. Freedom and Christ are slavery. See, these visitors thought that they would give these Colossians freedom. But their freedom was not given to them. They were not free from the world. They were enslaved The visitors saw that they could give a freedom from the law. That they're enslaved to the law. And here again, our scripture reading from this morning was from Isaiah 29, verse 13. Their lips proclaim me, but their heart is far from me. And here's an example to be aware of in church history. It's the belief of antinomianism. Probably not going to remember what it is, but it means this. Grace above all else. Well, there's grace. There's always grace. There's always grace. There's always grace. If I just continue to lean on grace, it's okay. It doesn't matter if you go to church or not. You can sit and watch TV and tune into church via TV. That's good. There's grace for you. You don't have to gather together with Christians. There's grace. You don't have to abstain from sin. There's grace. Hear Paul's words in the Romans. Should we continue to sin that grace would abound? By no means. Church history tells us that antinomianism always led to legalism. These hyper-grace movements always turn the boat to hyper-rules. There's grace, but you have to do it this way. There's grace as long as you don't go over here. Complain free of the world, but they were enslaved to it. They complained free of the law, but they were enslaved to it. They complained freedom from the flesh, but they were enslaved to it. So verse 23, they indeed had an appearance of wisdom. An appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Their appearance of spirituality 
is based on devotion. We're devoted to these things. Their appearance of spirituality was based on what they abstained from. Their appearance of spirituality was based on the severity of their body, but Paul says they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. This is pretty strong warning to Paul. Pretty strong conclusion. I love this quote from John Calvin. He said, It is of importance to consider here how prone and how forward the mind of man is to artificial for the apostle here graphically depicts the state of the old system of monkey, which came into use a hundred years after his death, as though he had never spoken a word. The zeal of men for superstition is suppressively, yeah, suppressively mad, which could not be restrained by so plain a declaration of God in the original This is horrible practice. Praise God that we come in Church, as we sing this morning, as we pray this morning, as we hear the word of God this morning, your worship is received by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you are coming here this morning with nothing to offer, then it's completely okay because Christ has offered everything for you. You come to the cross empty-handed. You don't earn your way by list of accomplishments earned by what Christ has done. Thank God that He comes and us by rooting us in Christ, building us up, and calling us to a family Thanks be to Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we are alive in Christ, that by His work on the cross, by his death, burial, and resurrection, we can now be in right relationship. And if this is the first morning where anybody's hearing this, I pray that this would be the morning where they turn from their wrong and separates them from their sin and then trust in Jesus for salvation. And if that's you this morning, I encourage you to just talk to somebody here who came and have, to have that conversation. But I pray for the rest of us, Father, that you would help us to be reminded of the Colossians. It's often easy to look into the scripture and say, how could they have done this? How could they have gotten off track with that? God, we are totally capable of getting off track or left to our own devices. So we pray that through the body of Christ, the church, that you encourage us to stir one another up, to push one another on, and to encourage us to abound with thanksgiving in Christ. Help us to be ready for the slow stand walk with him in a journey, a marathon with him. Help us to keep our eyes focused on him. For in him, the fullness of God is pleased in him. By him, for him,